It's good to see all you guys again. It was a lot of fun to take a swing at First John. For me personally, last week, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Last week, I got to swing at the first part of chapter four. Today, I'm taking another swing at the second half. And um, yeah, it's good to see you. I'm surprised you came back. It's good. Um, of course, it's 55 degrees outside. It's raining. I mean, what else are you going to do right now? I mean... So, no parks, no nothing. So, we're hanging out together. It's good to be together. Um, here we go. All right, let me, let me read for us, and we will get to work. This is First John chapter 4. A lot of the text will come up there. Um, so, you can read in your Bibles. If you're looking for a Bible and you want to follow along, there are in these tray tables right in the middle of the seats. Please get up, grab one, take one home if you don't have a Bible. We, those are for you. First um, John chapter 4. Uh, Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So, We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. This is God's word. Last week, we, we started with the same idea, and I know if you've been with us for a few weeks, I think you, you realize that this is like a record skipping, you know, that you pretty much get, this, get a, the same sermon about every four weeks, because this is just what John does. He is continuing to say the same thing over and over again, and that's because that church really needed to hear the things that John was writing about, and it also means that we need to hear over and over again these very simple things that John cares so much to tell us about, that he is writing them over and over again in this one letter. So we are, again, going to be hitting this idea of perfected love. What does it mean to have perfected love? That God loves us with a perfect love, and it has been perfected in those that abide in God and that God abides in. Last week, we talked about one of what, what does this mean, perfected love? Does it mean that there's something, you know imperfect with how God loves us and it's not until we receive it and do something about it that it becomes perfected that's not what it means Um, it also doesn't mean that we have to be perfect in order for God to love us in fact the opposite is the case Um, but we looked at the fact that perfected love means love that has accomplished its intended goal Perfected love means love that has accomplished its perfected goal. And, and last week we looked at this progression, that God loves us. We are therefore have the resources and the capacity and the motivation to love one another. And when we do that, this invisible God, this God that is spirit, is made visible in his body, the church. So we saw that that the end goal of God loving us is that God making himself, who is naturally invisible, visible to the world and to the church. Now, this week we're going to hit another end of God's perfect love. Here it is. You probably caught it. You maybe twitched when we read it in the passage. But it says, confidence in the day of judgment. Now... Some of you, you, you may be turning up here, here this morning and you've not been in church in years and you show up on Judgment Day, <laughs> right? We're going to talk about the elephant in the room, the Day of Judgment. You might be thinking, great, I left church three years ago because of this very thing. I don't believe in this. And here I am again, right? So just hold on, hang with me, and I'll try to convince you to keep listening. You could just turn me off right now. You could start checking your iPhone and see me back in 40 minutes when we close. But, but I, I want 
appeal to you to listen. Um, it's here in our text. This is one of the reasons why we love preaching through books of the Bible, so we get to talk about everything that we would normally skip over. It's uncomfortable to talk about there being a fixed day in the future where everything we do, said, everything we wanted to say and do um, will be revealed and God will judge it according to his perfect light and holiness and we will give an account for everything we've done. Christians believe that, that there's a day coming where all of that will be reconciled and that we will either be found, found being received by God or rejected by him based on what we've done. Now, before you turn me off, you don't believe this, um, I want you to realize this, that if you do not believe in a day like this, if you do not believe that, that God discerns this and judges us this way, I want you to think about this one thing. You may be thinking that you're not religious and that you don't believe in these things and that, and that you feel like that, that all of us can make up reality for what it is for us and we will live and die by our version of morality or reality that we create and everyone is simply supposed to be faithful to the version of this that they've created and you deny the fact that there is an objective standard truth by which all of us will one day give an account for let me just tell you that, that though you may not feel like you're, you're religious that is an incredibly strong profound religious statement to say there is not a day of judgment there are many holy, holy men, holy writings, prophets, even other religions that have said this is true, that God will one day judge the world. And there is nothing that you can do to prove otherwise. There is no data, there are no facts, there is no, there is no anything that you can do to absolutely prove the fact that there is not a judgment day. That is a profoundly strong religious statement to say there is not one because many people say that there is. So just know that, that you are not saying, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just not religious. I, I really wish I could believe like you believe. I really wish I could take that leap of faith. I, I'm just, I'm just, I, I just can't do that and believe what you believe. But, but we've all leapt. Everybody has taken a leap and has landed. It is profoundly religious to say there is no judgment day as well as to say that there is. And there's nothing you can do to prove there isn't. So hang with me, please. Um, Please, don't shut me down, but listen to what we have to say. Um, Here's where we're going. Through what, point number one, through what does our confidence come? Through what does our confidence come in the day of judgment? Through what can we be assured of our abiding in God and he in us, specifically and particularly on the day of judgment? That's verses 13 and 15. Next, what is our confidence to be in? What is our confidence in? Verses 16 and 17. And then what difference does this confidence and assurance make? Verse 18. Here we go. Before we, before we talk about how does our confidence come, I want to remind you, you probably know this inherently, but, but there, are, there are other options. There are plenty of options to find or ways to get confidence, especially in light of what we're talking about today. Um, you can be someone who embraces the idea of a judgment day, and, and that makes sense to you. And so what you do, knowing God's laws and knowing that we will be weighed in the scales one day, you are doing your very best to fill your scale up with good deeds and good stuff and obedience. Hoping that in the end of the day, when all your bad stuff is weighed against your good stuff, that you are found in, in the black and not the red. Okay? That is one way to deal with Judgment Day, is to work your tails off knowing that everything depends upon what you do and don't do. It's a very, very viable option. A lot of people take that. Another option, this maybe appeals to more traditional people in here, people that are used to church and maybe grew up in the church. In light of the day of judgment, where you ultimately stand with God, are you his or are you not, you will turn to religious externals. When asked the question, do you belong to God, you will say, of course I do. I was baptized in XYZ church. Or I took First Communion on such and such a day. Or if you're a Protestant, hey, I was baptized on such and such a day when I made a profession of faith. And you could, in light of going, well, where do I really stand with God? You could turn to something external, a religious observance, 
You give to so many great things. You, you do good things whenever they're available to you. You can rely on those externals. That's another option that a lot of us take. A third one is, I've already mentioned it, but it's subjectivity to really say that, you know what, I, I can dismiss the elephant in the room. I, don't, I, I, can, I can rationalize that there isn't a judgment day. There is not an objective standard. You can talk yourself out of it, and many of us do that. In, in, in light of sensing a condemned heart or fear, <clears throat> we, we rationalize away and say, you know what, God, God really can't mean it, you know, when he says everything, you know, it, it can't mean that. Look, at all, look how much better I am than other people. How can I be in trouble, or how can I be fearful on this day of judgment? So even when your heart con- condemns you, you try to rationalize it away through some subjective reasoning. All three very popular options. Well, John is obviously offering us a fourth one. Verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Um, Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So from this passage, we see several things. I'll just point out very quickly that, that, that John is going to be an equal opportunity disturber this morning. Okay, For all of us, those that feel like we do abide in God and those that have a sense that we don't, we're both to be disturbed today. Because look at, the, look at the condition here. It says we have to be like Jesus in this world in order to have confidence in the day of judgment. We have to figure out what that means. Because all of us, if we're honest, are not like Jesus. If anybody feels like they are, please raise your hand and I will let you continue this message, okay? Because I should not be talking, right? We are not like Jesus in this world. So we have to figure out what this means. And we have to say, wow, the believer and non-believer, boy, if we still fear, then that means we've not been perfected in love. We've got to figure this out. There's very important questions here in this text. So I want all of us to be disturbed here for a little bit. But, but on the way to that, I want us to see this. There is a way to be confident. That's the good news of what John is saying. There is means to assurance, not just to have a relationship with God, not just to have an experience with him as awesome and as fulfilling and as lively as that is. We can know for sure. We can know for sure. We can, have, we can be beyond doubt. We can be absolutely 100% assured of where we stand with God. He's saying you, you can have this confidence. In fact, he's saying that, that, that this confidence is the very substance, it's the very energy, it's the very engine of the Christian life. This assurance, this confidence before God. In fact, much of what the Bible says that Christians are to experience and to enjoy, you cannot enjoy without this confidence. It is that important. Joy comes to those that know where they stand with God. Boldness comes to those that are confident before God in the day of judgment and everything leading up to that. That's what he's saying. Now, please do not hear me saying that you, that, 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 let me back up. You can still be a Christian and still be working on this assurance. You can be alive to God. You can be taught by His Spirit and still be working on this confidence. In fact, this very confidence is something that waxes and wanes. Why? Because our our life with God is alive. It's a living thing. This assurance, this confidence will at some times be fantastically strong and sometimes will be barely sensible to you. It'll barely be alive. That's why this whole book is written, both to believers and non, that this is the way you can have confidence, because it is the stuff of the Christian life. Look Look at what happened to Paul when he gets this confidence before God in Romans 8. This is right after he says, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution? And then he says this, I am sure 
that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can so forget, we, we miss that little statement, that little qualifier. That I am convinced of these things. This is why he could do what he did. This is why he could risk his life. This is why he could, could literally lose his life for the sake of those that don't know Jesus yet. He could risk everything every single day, be beaten, be shipwrecked, be all the things that we read about when we went through the book of Acts. We could, he can do all of that because of these three words, I am sure. He wrote to live is Christ and to die is gain. How could he write that? He was confident. And we see it again in 2 Timothy. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for which I am suffering, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He's, he's sure. And it's out of that for which all the great acts of courage come. You read Hebrews 11 recently? Just look through that, 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 that great table of contents for all of our for all, our, for all of our kids' stories, all the great men of faith, right? Look, think about Noah. I just, this just hit me this week, Noah. I mean, God says, build an ocean liner in the middle of Kansas. Do that. And Noah builds an ark, right? He gets made fun of, not for a week, not for a month, Think how much trouble you would give your neighbor if he started building an ark next door to you. He was, deri- he was made fun of for decades, for years and years and years, yet he was unflinching. He kept building, and one day he was vindicated. What, how did he keep building in the light of, I mean, imagine what was written and said about this, and he kept going. He was sure. He was convinced. Think about Moses. Moses, right? Stutterer, can't hold a conversation without stuttering. Says, Moses, this is God speaking, Moses, go to the most powerful person in the world and demand from him their free labor slave force and tell them that you're going to walk them out of his nation. Go. Go to that. Go. And guess what? And he's not going to listen to you. And when you do actually what I have said, he will chase you with an army, with swords and spears and chariots and horses, and you will fight them with sticks. Go, go, have at it. How on earth could they do this stuff? It's just, now, Abraham, I mean, the hall of faith, they had plenty of doubts, plenty of doubts. Think of Abraham, right, the man of faith. I mean, man of faith. He traveling through a part of town. He gives his I mean he's sitting there, he feels threatened by the by the most powerful man in, in that area. What does he do? Well he fears for his life because his wife is beautiful and he gives her up for a one night stand to this guy. I mean he's not a good husband, right? He doesn't get it. So how on earth could he do these things? What What was his boldness? How did they do it? Look at this. Hebrews 11.2. Little secret for this whole passage. says, how did these men of God do this? They had received commendation. Or another version says, they had gained approval. They were not obeying God, hoping to get approval from him. They knew that they knew that they knew that they already pleased God. And they were emboldened. There's something that just happens when you know that you please God, when you know God is pleased with you, there's nothing that can stand in our way. That's the message of Hebrews 11. They had approval. They had assurance. They knew. So through what does our confidence come this morning? How is 1 John helping us? Verse 13, by this we know, oh, that phrase, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Verse 13. What's in John's mind here? It says assurance can come to us, this valuable assurance and confidence can come to us through our experience with the Holy Spirit. He's already mentioned this in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, but when, of his gospel, but when the helper comes, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1, he mentions the spirit of truth in 1 John. 
He's already mentioned the spirit of truth. And then in his gospel, he writes this. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, this is what will happen. When the spirit comes to you, he will bear witness about me. You'll bear witness about me. That means that if there's anything about Jesus that you believe and you find meaningful for yourself, you have experienced the Holy Spirit. Because natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians says. If there's anything meaningful for you about this person, Jesus, and what he's done for you, and that means something to you, and you see that, and you see that as being meaningful for you, and the cross being meaningful for you, that means that you have experienced the Holy Spirit leading you into that truth. It's exactly what, how we see Jesus explaining Peter back when the disciples were still trying to figure out who this guy was. I'm following him, we're eating together, we're living together, we're doing all this stuff together, and guess what? I'm still not sure. And so Jesus one day pulls him aside and says, who, do you, you know, who are people saying that I am? You know, and they answer a few things. And, and he says, well, who, who do you say I am? And of course, Peter stands up. Boldness, he said, what does he say? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Oh man, he gets it. But look at how Jesus explains this. And Jesus answered him, said, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. God revealed it to him. He experienced the Holy Spirit. He was allowed to see who Jesus was, and it was not flesh and blood. It was not his brain cells. It was not his rational thought. It was not all of his powers of insight. And we know that because two minutes later, Jesus calls him the devil. Because Jesus goes on to explain what it means for him to be the Messiah, what it means for him to be the Savior of of Israel. And it means I'm going to have to suffer and die. And of course, Peter, again, stands up with all boldness, but this time doesn't get it right. He puts his foot in his mouth and says, forbid it, Lord, that you should die and suffer. If you're the savior of Israel, then you cannot suffer and die. And then Jesus says, all right, my father was speaking to you. Now the devil's speaking to you. It wasn't anything to do with Peter. It was the gift of the spirit. So be assured today that if this is meaningful for you, that you have what he's talking about here, that he has given us of his spirit. Verse 14 says, and then we have seen, okay, he goes on another point, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. This is the second thing through which John is saying that we can have confidence through is the apostles' testimony about what they have seen and heard about Jesus. He's, he is just reiterating what he wrote in the first, first verse of 1 John where he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this life was made manifest and we have seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Confidence comes through knowing that John and everyone else that has written the New Testament had eyewitness accounts. They knew Jesus. They touched Jesus. They, they, they were friends with him. This was not hearsay. They knew Jesus. The gospel writers, they, they knew him. You, we can be confident in the fact that John is an eyewitness. Think about it this way, and I'm only going to get into this for 30 seconds because it's come up recently in so many conversations. In general, historical records of anything in history are considered reliable based on how many manuscripts there are and how Soon, those manuscripts were written from the events that took place about which they're written, right? Does that make sense? So historical data becomes more reliable the more manuscripts we have and how early those things were written after the events took, took place. For example, our average writing about Roman history, right, pretty much comes from about four or five 
I mean, basically what we know about the Roman Empire comes from about four or five different historians. And we have about 300, okay, listen, I do not know a lot about this, so I am just in dangerous territory here. But just hear me, I hope this helps somebody. There's about 350 documents, 350 manuscripts that teach us what happened in the Roman Empire. And those were written about 500 years after the events at which they, they record, okay? 350, sounds pretty reliable. Do you know, have you looked, have you heard what the New Testament manuscripts are like? 6,000 copies of the New Testament that were written as early as 70 years after Jesus ascended. We can be more sure that Jesus did what he did than Julius Caesar did what he did. Yet no one's sitting here arguing about, well, how do we know Julius Caesar? Isn't it interesting? But we have more historical record and more historical data on Jesus than we do Julius Caesar. Anyway, moving right along. Hope that helps somebody. That's what John's saying. You can believe me, is what he's saying. So, um, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. So we have confidence through our accurate confession that Jesus is both the Son of God and the Son of Man. That's, we know that God abides in us and he in, and us in him if we make this confession. All right, we sang about it. We've made that confession this morning that we believe that, about, that, that Jesus was both fully man and fully God. And we know this was a big deal for this church because John is, is saying, hey, you've got to confess he's son of God and son of man. Son of, yes, because in verse chapter four, verse two, right above this, he says, by this you know the spirit of God that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Why is he saying this? The church was being taught that Jesus appeared human. The Son of God simply appeared human. He was not really human. He just appeared to be so. And they're doing this because they, because they, because what they believe is that there's a huge, vast difference between what happens in the material world and the spiritual world. And what they're doing is they're making room for their own sin and their own flesh because they're saying that whatever happens in the material world doesn't affect the spiritual and vice versa. And so we can do whatever we want. Our actions can be whatever they want. And they don't either impact or reflect what's happening in the spirit. And so we can do whatever we want and still, be, and still abide in God and He in us. And first John, the whole point of First John is to connect, is to connect those two. To saying that what has happened to you in God through Christ is going to make a huge difference in what happens in the material world. And so we know that we are abiding in God, He and us, as we make a confession and understanding that these two things are connected and that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Hope that gets us somewhere this morning. That's John's third thing. Um, so we have confidence comes through the Spirit, through our faith and that apostolic witness and our confession. Now, here is the whole point of what I'm saying this morning. If you don't take away anything else, you can take this away and I'll be happy. All right? Our confidence comes through these things. But our confidence is not in these things. I'll tell you why. The Spirit, your experience with the Spirit, any given day will change you've been a Christian any amount of time, you know that there are days where you just wake up and there are angels in your bedroom and everything is real and you wake up to singing and you're walking on literally above the ground in the air all day long and it's because you sense God's presence. And there are some days where you you are like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I, I, I know that about you because unless you're that one guy that is Jesus in here, that's what I'm like. I know that. And guess what? Your assent to the apostolic witness about who Jesus is, the Bible, there's sometimes when I open the Bible and I'm like, I can't believe I believe this. This is crazy. As a Christian, you've never thought that? That we are going to open up our Bible sometimes and go, eh, okay, I'm not really feeling it this morning. That's going to happen. Also, your confession your confession about who Jesus is and, and the accuracy of it, listen, will vary. Our confidence can be in none of those things. And all, all, all the other things that John is saying in this book that are evidences of our abiding in God and He in us, remember we talked about if God's love is real in us, we will be obedient to His commands. We will love one another. And we will put faith in the gospel. That's what he's saying. 
guess what? All those things are subjective. All of those things change. They all do. That's why we cannot put our confidence in them. But through experiencing them, we confidence comes to us. Now, I'll tell you a quick story about this. Um, an illustration. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I are coming home from a party. I forget whose house it was, but we're always the last ones at a party. If you know anything about us, we shut most parties down. We stay at your house. It was way too late, and you're very gracious to not kick the Zerokas out, but we're working on that, so have mercy. Um, anyway, for this one time, we actually came home early from a party. And as I walk up to the front door, I'm the first one. I've got the keys. I get up to the front door, and even before I open it, I smell smoke. So I, I like, fumble through the keys, and I, like, drop them and everything, and I'm just trying to rush to get the door open. I open up the door, and the smoke just pours out. And I just, and I rush in. Oh, my gosh. Something was on fire, is on fire. I have no idea. So I go throughout the whole house just trying to find the source of this fire. And, and I'm thinking, okay, it may be something that, that was in the ductwork of, of our oil furnace because we just had some work done on it. So what is the first thing I do? I call, you know, Woodfin Oil. Hey, please come. Either you just worked on my furnace. There's something burning in it. I don't know what's going on. Just please come. And so in a few minutes, both he and I are tearing apart the basement trying to find where on earth the smoke is coming from. And so the kids, you know, the kids, while, meanwhile, run into the house and grab everything that's precious to them and run outside, right? So, so, so we've got soccer balls, we've got stuffed animals, we've got, you know, we've got journals. My wife grabs the iMac and is running out of you know? And so and I'm just in the basement trying to find where on earth this is coming from. Um, and finally, finally, we cannot find it. So I'm ripping down ceiling tiles, everything, and I finally open up this one closet and this, and it, and this, under the smoke, I can still feel it, just stings my eyes. And I look up, and there's a bin at the top of this closet that um, is under a stairwell. And there was a light bulb, a light socket with a light bulb in it, um, that was coming down from the ceiling. And about five hours earlier, I had taken this bin of towels and shoved it up against the light bulb. And it had been sitting there heating up those towels and smoldering for five hours. So I, so I do it. I do the smart thing. I grab the thing and put it on the ground, and it explodes into flame because oxygen has finally gotten to it. So basically, this whole house was about to go up, and it was right under the stairwell, full of wood. I mean, it was. So why, why am I telling this story? Um, anyway, I fire so up one fire extinguisher and a hose later, everything's fine. Um, Am I telling you a story just because to let you know I'm an idiot and God is gracious? Okay, which is true. But that's not the point of my story. The point of my story is that because, there was, because of all the smoke, I, I, I knew there was a fire. You know? I, I knew it. Hey, and, and, and all of our experience and all of these great things that John is saying that, that Christians should experience, hey, it's, it, it's smoke that points us back to a fire. So... That's, that's, that's how we're reading this. If, there's, if things are, these things are evident in your life, then God is at work somewhere. And we know the Bible promises. It says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I, don't, I didn't know how big that fire was. It could have been so small. But guess what? There was smoke. No matter how big the fire was, there was some smoke in the house. It could have been a match or the whole downstairs could have been on fire. It didn't matter. There was some smoke and so I knew there was a fire. You see smoke in your life? I'm, I'm twisting the analogy, right? It's good, right? There's fire. There's fire. Yeah, don't take... Yeah, reverse it in your mind for me. Okay? Anyway, um, let's not go set our houses on fire. So, all right, here's, here's the thing. So our confidence comes through something else. Sorry, our confidence comes through all those things, but our confidence is in something else. Where do we look for confidence? This is why we have 1 John and verse 16. So we have come to know and believe. The NIV here gets it right, I think. Rely upon the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We have come to, one, know, and two, rely upon what? Is it our love for God? Is it our experience of God's love? Is it our faith? Is it our obedience? No. We have come to know and put all of our hope on the love that God has for us. So 
can I, for just a moment, remind us what the love of God is like? Four things. I'm just going to use these big four words to help us. God loves us sacrificially. If this is all our hope, we have to look to God's love. We know that God has loved us sacrificially. We hit this last week. Chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God. (laughs) Not that we loved God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means that Jesus was sent to suffer God's wrath in our place. This is the greatest love in the universe. No love story, no no novel, nothing from history tops this. Even though Jesus said, hey, greater love has no man than this, then he laid down his life for his friends. We hit this last week, remember? So love can be measured. There's greater love, there's lesser love, and there's no greater love that man can show than laying down his life. Here's the thing. Lots of people have laid down their lives for people that they love. But no one has gone through hell for you. No one has experienced hell for someone else. Jesus did. He absolutely suffered more than anything, anyone in the world. He suffered more than just the loss of his life. He suffered hell. He lost the most valuable thing that anyone could ever lose eternal, unbroken communion with God. He lost that forever for you on the cross in those hours. No one has ever loved you like Jesus because no one has ever sacrificed that much for you. On the cross, Jesus did not just become sinful with our sin, he became our sin and God exhausted all of his holy, eternal, tormenting wrath against sin on his own flesh and blood. He had never known one moment of separation from his father. But in those hours on the cross, he experienced separation as far as the east is from the west. One Scottish pastor put it this way, and just got this last week. He says, dear friends, let us look into this ocean through which Christ waited. He was without any comforts of God, no feeling that God loved him, no feeling that God pitied him, no feeling that God supported him. God was his son before, and now that son has become complete darkness, not a smile from his father, not a look, not a kind word. He was without a God. It was as if he had no God at all. This is what he heard from his father. For all of his obedience, for all of his obedience to God the Father, this is what he heard. Depart from me, ye cursed, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. That's what he heard God saying to him. This is the hell which Christ suffered. He was forsaken in the place of sinners. I'm still quoting. says, if you close with him as your surety, you will never be forsaken. For from the broken bread and poured out wine seems to rise the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're going to take communion at the end of this service and I'm hoping that as we do that by faith, we hear the cries of Jesus' suffering in your place, rising up from that bread and from that juice and you hear this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you hear the answer coming from God and his son Jesus for you. For you. That's what it means for God to love us sacrificially. Now, God's love is also active. It's proactive. It initiates. We look back in, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but it is John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. John just has a moment right there on the page. It's like he's forgetting his write a letter and just has a running fit. In verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. See what great love the Father has given to us that we would be called the children of God. What is he saying here? He's talking about the doctrine of adoption. He is saying that God brought us into his family. He chose us before we had any desire for him, before we had any knowledge of him, before we needed to be adopted by him, he chose us and made us his and gave us his last name with all the rights and privileges of being a son of God. Behold what great love it is 
For those of you that have adopted children, those of you that will adopt children, God, there was nothing in us. There was nothing in the child that you've adopted that said, wow, this child loves me, therefore I will choose him. In fact, a lot of reasons why we adopt, a lot of ways that we show Jesus' love in adoption is that we adopt children in spite of what they are or what they could be. We adopt them simply because we love them. And we choose them and we love them and we bring them into our family before they've done anything good or bad. We love and choose and bring them. This is how God has loved me and you. He did not wait for us to approach him. He came and got us. This is the love of God. He loves us intimately. Intimately. Now, before you get weirded out on me and think I'm going romantic on you, all right, I'm not, all right? It's intimate. How's it intimate? 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. We did this a couple weeks ago. And reassured our heart before him. For wherever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And here's the phrase that just turns the whole thing upside down for me. And he knows everything. All right. When you're dating someone for the first time, guys, I'll speak to you for a second. You're putting on your best show. You're taking her to the best restaurant. You have your best clothes on. You've got your best cologne. I mean, you are putting, you are, the last thing you want this girl to do is to know who you are. The last thing you want is for her to know you. Because you do not want this to be one and done. You want this to continue at least a few times. So you don't want her to know you. You want her to think you are all that. And, and if you do a good job, you get another date. I mean, that's how it works for us, right? Just being honest. God loves you. He knows everything about you. He is omniscient. We're talking about God is love. That means that all of his love is is affirmed and described by all his other attributes. That means that God loves you with absolutely full knowledge. That's what this means. When he brings you into his family and he has said, your sins are forgiven. And on the cross, when he said, it is finished, he was not just doing that based on what you knew of your sin or sin that you committed before you trusted him. He said, it is finished and forgave and suffered for all your sin, for every sin that you will commit in the future. He saw all of it. You are not going to surprise him with your sin. He knew your sin. He knows everything. And when he declares you righteous, it's based on everything you've done before you knew him and after. That's just been tearing me up the last few weeks. He loved us and he knows everything. You can't surprise him. You can't befuddle him. You can't, oh, finally, this is the last straw. He already died for your last straw. There is no last straw that he doesn't know about. Let that sink deep in and let that confirm your place before God that if you belong to him, there is nothing he does not know and has not already suffered for you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He knows us, gets into this relationship knowing full well what he's getting into. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. He knows the, he knows the process. He knows the goal. All of those who have been just, all those he called, Romans 8, all those he called, he, he justified. And all those he justified, he will glorify. He knows the end from the beginning. That includes your sin from this morning, yesterday, and in 20 years. God's love never changes, verse Number four, I love this phrase in the storybook Bible. I mean, I just, you need to, re- I mean, if you don't even have kids, you can buy this book and just put brown cover on it because it'll be embarrassing if you had a kid's storybook Bible on yourself. But just, just get it, all right? Say that you're giving it to a friend or something. Anyway, it says the Jesus storybook Bible. I love this description of God's love. God loves us with a, right. <laughs> you're starting to say it, right? Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever 
love. I want to do a sermon series on that sentence. Just, I think we, uh, anyway, um, we'll figure that out. But that is worth this entire morning. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. His love never changes because he can't change. His love for you doesn't depend on anything you do or don't do. All of his resources of his love and commitment to you are based in himself because he was happy to love you and it pleases him to love you. Therefore, he will be pleased in loving you from all eternity to all eternity. That is the love of God. That's what we have. So what is this, believing in this, what confidence, what leads to confidence before him? So what does this confidence produce? Verse 17, by this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Therefore, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We've said all the time that there, that there are these means by which confidence comes. And, this, and John is, is giving us this sweet phrase that confidence in the day of judgment is dependent upon this thing. Look at it. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Because as Jesus is in this world, so are we. The implications of this are vast, and I will just tease out one really quickly as we close. This means, at least this means, that whatever Jesus has done, it's as if we did it. If Jesus has suffered hell for our sins, we are as free from judgment before God as Jesus himself is. If we, by the power of the Spirit, see the cross, then it is as if we hung there already. And so we are as confident as Jesus is in the presence of God. And we know what Jesus, we know what God the Father thinks about Jesus. He said so. Remember at his baptism? Like any good dad, God the Father shows up at Jesus' baptism and says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. That is what God says about us. We are like him in this world. So this is how John can say next. So therefore, there can be no fear in light of this kind of love, right? Whoever is still afraid of being punished for their sins has not been perfected in this love. We have not come to know the sacrificial, active, knowing and consistent love of God. We may know about God's love. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you don't know about God's love. I'm just saying that if we fear punishment still, we are not relying on this kind of love. We've not been perfected, which means we're not relying on this love because there are no signs of this love in our life. Loving others, obeying faith. Are you afraid this morning? This is so pervasive. Fear is so pervasive. One of the ways that we know we're we're not confident in looking forward to that day of judgment is that we're not confident now. That confidence for that one day where everything will be exposed and everything will be measured, our confidence in that day based on who Jesus is plays this way. If we fear punishment now, how can we not fear punishment later? Is there something, I don't know, maybe something you did in high school, those of you that are that old, um, still plagues you? You still think about something that you did out of commission or omission, and you can't get rid of it. In fact, it still threatens your very life today. You may have a family now and you may have kids and still in in the back of your mind, one day, all of this charade is going to be up and God is finally going to get me for what I did. Does that plague you? Do you still feel like your life now is threatened by punishment that God might give? 
for something that you have confessed, for something that you have seen written above Jesus' name on the cross. Is there something maybe you've done recently that you're ashamed of? And rightfully so, ashamed of. And you are having trouble bringing it into the light because you are still fearing punishment from God or from someone else. Where's that fear coming from? You're still afraid of, John is saying, you're afraid of being punished. Therefore, you will not bring it into the light and and you will keep it and you will find and you will try somehow to rationalize it. You will somehow try to say, I'm not that bad. And when it comes to the day of judgment, you'll say, I've been a good person. I was baptized on such and such a day. I'm trying my hardest and try as we might as appeal to our religious externals as we might to point to our subjective spiritual experience as we might it does not do away with a sense of guilt and condemnation and fear before God we live in this world in that world I know I do I'm pretty sure you do We need God's grace to see Jesus' finished work for us. We need to see his perfected love. Because when we do that, this fear that has dogged us and kept us and hurt us will be cast out by God's perfect love for us. That's our only hope. We cannot turn to anything that we have done subjectively. We must turn to the love that God has for us we've been talking about this morning. Let me me read how one hymn writer puts it, and then I'll pray, and then we'll take two minutes to reflect, and then we'll take communion together. Listen to this. From whence this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son, for me and will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on you if you have my release procured and freely in my place endured the whole of divine wrath here it is payment God cannot twice demand first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine Read that again. Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest, the merits of your great high priest. He bought your liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear your banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. May we get this. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Yes, God, by your spirit, help us see this. God, help us see this so much that there will be smoke from the fire that this causes. May you put this love in our hearts so much that it would fill our lives with your aroma, with truth with confession, with faith. God, let it be true in us. God, that we may not no longer fear in light of that day or any other day. Help us, God, we pray. Amen.